Welcome back to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. Today is a special day because today I want to talk to you about baggage. We all want to pretend that we don't have any baggage. We all want to act like there's never been a time in our lives where we've ever gone through something. So, of course, there won't be any repercussions. There won't be any lasting effects. So we just want to act like every day is tabula rasa. Every day is a clean slate. And we're not hounded by things that have happened in our past. I mean, it, that, that might just be me. Maybe it's not you. But I'll never forget. There was this time when I was in college, and I honestly have never shared this story publicly, so you're welcome, listener. You are welcome, because there was a time when I was in college that my ex-girlfriend, who, I mean, we had just broken up, and a few days before the breakup, we were in a Barnes & Noble, and she sees me looking at this book. It was a book called Traveling Light by Max Lucado, and it was really about Psalm 23 and how that ministers to our souls, right? Well, she really keyed in on it. So she broke up with me like a day before my birthday and then gives me a book. And she says, hey, I got you something. I said, cool, cool. Like, this is weird. I'm kind of bummed because we're no longer together. But, you know, it was amicable, so it's fine. And so I open up the package, right? And it says, traveling light, releasing the burdens you were never intended to bear. I'm like, all right, um, don't love that. And then I flip it over and it has two suitcases on a lonely road, (laughs) mind you, a lonely road. And it says, the luggage of life. Have you ever been known to pick up a few bags? And so for like 20 years, I have friends from my college experience who will call me up and be like, hey, man, how you doing? You traveling light? And it's just, (laughs) and she, to her credit, she, she had no idea. Like she, she just saw me looking at it at the bookstore and went back and picked it up as kind of a breakup gift. And so if you're looking to break up with someone, get them a breakup gift. That's great. I mean, why not? But it, it was perfect. And so I've gotten a lot of laughs out of that. But it just brings me back to this idea that whether we want to admit it or not, we have baggage. You can have just one conversation with one person and, and watch how you respond. We've all been through experiences from our childhood and our family of origin, even all the way to the present, that have left a mark. I grew up in a dysfunctional home, and the trauma of his past continued to affect his relationships even after he had grown up. He was determined to change this. Today I'm here with Ike Miller, the author of Good Baggage, How Your Difficult Childhood Prepared You for Healthy Relationships. Ike leads Bright City Church in Durham, North Carolina, alongside of his wife, Sharon Hottie Miller. He has written about the intersection of theology, mental health, and family origin issues in Christianity Today and Missio Alliance, as well as other outlets. Ike, welcome to the MercyCast. Raleigh, thanks so much for having me, man. I, I love that story. It's so funny. <laughs> I mean, she a had breakup no gift. idea. Here's a breakup <laughs> gift about baggage. Here you go. <laughs> I bet you never went to a bookstore with another girlfriend ever again after this. No, man, I fly solo every time I go to the bookstore now. It's like, that's right. It's like, hey, what are you doing tonight? Nothing. Nothing. And I'm don't in the bookstore. Yeah, that's nothing. Right. No. Have you ever been to? No, I've never been to a bookstore. I don't go to bookstores. I'm, I'm waiting till marriage to go to a bookstore. That's, that's what I'm doing. 
I'm not going forward. down that road again. I'm not there. <laughs> no, I've been hurt. I've got baggage from the bookstore. I can't, even, right. exactly. I can't even walk by like a books a million without wincing. <laughs> You know, right? It's yeah. just it's super you see suitcases, and you start twitching a little. I know. Just, I know. I can't even travel anymore. I just no, stay at not home. at all. Yeah, not yeah. at all. Well, I love, I love this idea of dealing with the intersection of theology, mental health, and family of origin issues because that's really close to the heart of the Mercy Cast. The Mercy mm-hmm. Cast is about learning the art of compassion through life's adversity, and so. The mere fact that you can write a book called Good Baggage, it, it kind of astounds me because I have always looked at baggage through a negative lens. I want to really pretend that I don't have baggage. I want to act like I have it all together. Mm-hmm. But truth be told, I don't. And none mm-hmm. of us do. Mm-hmm. How did you become self-aware of how your own personal baggage was impacting your relationships? Yeah, you know, uh just to touch on that theology question real quick, I, and in, in the intersection with mercy, mercy and compassion is recognizing that the very nature of Christ's redemptive work was driven by his compassion for us mm-hmm. as his people. That is what motivated him to endure suffering on our behalf. And realizing that compassion doesn't come from a place so much of anger or the need to punish as it does of grieving brokenness and wanting to see change happen and yeah. God loving us enough to do that work to come and to heal us as the great physician. And so I just wanted to touch on that as you talk about compassion. But in my own story, the way that I came to an awareness of this was realizing, first of all, all the ways that my childhood was playing out in my relationships now. And in particular, I honestly realized this most when it came to my leadership and leading the people that I worked with and in my congregation. And the long story short being, I realized I was ultimately codependent with my whole congregation, that I had reached a point where I did not know who I was apart from who I was to my people, that my value in, in many ways came entirely from how happy were my people with me? Was I valuable to them? And that just became exhausting. And that forced me to do some reflective work. And then to begin to see the ways that I was affected in other relationships, codependent in other relationships in particular. And as I was doing that work and began to share about the ways my childhood was impacting me negatively, and that I needed to overcome that, I also began to realize that there were some things that it gave me that I could use for the health of my relationships. So the the easiest example is growing up in the environment that I did with a father who had uh, alcohol use disorder or alcoholism, you never knew which version of him you're going to walk into a room with. And so you walk into the room and you begin to immediately read body language and facial expressions and emotional cues. And you get really good at reading people. And as an adult now, you walk into every room and you are reading people. Where it goes wrong is when we believe that we can read people's minds, right? And we assume, I know what you're thinking, and we proactively react to how we think they're feeling. Um, And that gets us in trouble. That leads us to take on things that are not ours to take on. 
But I realized that that ability to read people was a gift that I can use for my relationships if I can learn how to leverage it for my relationships now. And so that's when I began to kind of have that aha moment of what else is in my baggage that I can use? (laughs) No, that's incredible. And seeing your baggage as kind of a mixed bag Mm -hmm. is refreshing, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's often that we see it, like I said earlier, it's just bad. Well, you have baggage. Well, I mean, I don't want it. It was Mm -hmm. given to me and no Mm -hmm. one told me what to do with it. Right. So it kind of comes with me everywhere I go. Mm -hmm. And you talk about these things that you learned, like you learned that you were being codependent with your congregation. That is such a beautiful thing for someone to be able to say out loud, because I wonder Mm -hmm. how many pastors are wrestling with this codependency. Like, I've got, I've got to keep them happy. I've, yeah. Could you tell me a little bit more? Could you define codependency for mm-hmm. us and talk about how that can really impact everything else we do, especially in vocational Christian ministry? Absolutely. You know, before getting into some of this work, when I heard codependency, I thought of people pleasing or approval seeking or just kind of always keeping the peace in every situation or just doing whatever people wanted you to do kind of being a doormat kind of thing. But as I began to understand the unique environment that creates codependency, one of the most helpful definitions came from a psychologist named T.N. Dayton. And their definition is codependency is a trauma-induced loss of self. And what they meant by that was um, at some point in our life, we endured something that required us to be someone other than ourselves in order to survive it. And in that process of being who we thought someone else needed us to be, we lost a clear sense of ourselves. And so now in every relationship we walk into, we're constantly asked the question, who do you want me to be or who are you expecting me to be? And how do I meet that expectation? The problem with that is that is exhausting when you're constantly trying to figure out who do you want me to be versus let me just show up as who I am. But because we don't know who we are, we don't know how to do that. And the way that that affects us in vocational ministry in particular is we're often working both with a bunch of people, whether that's 20 or 50 or 1,000, any of those numbers, it's impossible to be what everybody wants us to be. But you add on top of that, this call to be self-sacrificing as followers of Jesus, to be kind, to lay yourselves down for others. And that gets added onto this this codependency in a way that we don't know where's the line between self-sacrifice and codependency. And it ends up just crushing us and, and overwhelming us and exhausting us because we don't know where that line is. Where's the line between mm. self-sacrificing and codependency? And I think that's so important because if you go to a theological seminary, they don't exactly train you on that. There's not a course that's (laughs) structured in such a way that's saying, you know what, I want you to not lose yourself in Mm -hmm. your ministry because, yeah, it's so easy. And and just it doesn't have to just be ministry. It could be your job. It could be your family Mm -hmm. asking that question. What am I doing here? Am I am I asking this person in my head? who do you want me to be? Or am I coming as myself? Mm-hmm. Am I being myself? And I think if we have any success in anything, especially if we have grown up in a dysfunctional home, 
sometimes pressing mute on yourself makes you feel safer. Sometimes Mm -hmm. pausing some things about yourself and not really showing the truest version of you to people, it'll make you feel more accepted and you feel like things go, you go with the flow. Yeah. But now you're living in an inauthentic life. Mm -hmm. You know, that question of, of where that line is, one of the best examples I go to is the end of Mark chapter one, where Mm. Jesus has just healed a bunch of people. And then the next morning he's gone out and he's praying and, and the disciples come out to him and they're like, Hey, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus's response is not, well, let me go to them and continue to do whatever it is that they want me to do. It's let's I've go. I've got kingdom let's work. Down. Let's go. <laughs> and so the first thing was to, to identify, okay, Jesus didn't just do whatever the people thought, you know, was the kind thing to do or the nice thing to do. And so I don't have to just do what everybody thinks I should do. They don't set the agenda for me. But the second is Jesus knew what his mission was. He knew right. his mission there was to bring the kingdom. And that did not mean I just do whatever people want me to do for them. And so the line that is so helpful for me is when Jesus talks about laying himself down, he talks about laying himself down for the glory of the Father. And I think for many of us, when we're caught in codependency, we're laying ourselves down for the glory of others. We are trying to figure out how do I lay myself down in a way that will make you happy with me, which is not the same as laying myself down for the mission that God has called me to. And so for me, one is being able to know, okay, what is the mission that God has called me to? And then does that mission require X, Y, or Z of me? So those are a couple of things, but that the, the real, on a more practical level, the line is that line of disrespect. When someone is calling me to do something that requires me to disrespect myself in order to fulfill that, and I feel obligated or manipulated into that, that is unhealthy. That is codependency. That is crossing the line. And you bring up Jesus, you bring up this almost sadistic choice of mm-hmm. give myself the space that I need versus ministering to people. And, you know, mm-hmm. he's doing miracles all over the place. He's become known. Mm-hmm. His disciples are kind of guilt tripping him just a tad, whether they know it or not. <laughs> but he has a robust sense of purpose and mission, like you mm-hmm. said. And I think Mm -hmm. when we have a robust sense of purpose, when we know what we're supposed to do and we know what our mission is, boundary keeping becomes a little bit easier. It becomes a little bit easier to say no because Mm -hmm. we know what we're supposed to do. Yeah. And you talk about this idea, like I, I loved how you couched it. You talked about how he was living for the glory of the Father versus the glory of others. How do we recognize when we're living for the glory of others? You know, a big indication for me, and this may not be universal, but a big indication for me is I know that I am feeling a pressure to do something for someone else versus, you know, being driven by mission or God's call because it feels like there is going to be punishment for me from you if I don't do this. You know, so if I, as a pastor, am in a moment where I am... I've been serving, I've been working, you know, eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours that day. And I'm at the point where I need to be present with my son. We've, we've got a time that's connected or that's set apart for us to, to spend together. And someone calls and they say, hey, we've got an emergency. Can you come take care of this? And my response is, 
hey, I'm not able to do that right now, but let me connect you with so-and-so who who can help you right now. If their response to that suggests like they're going to disapprove of me if I don't come now, that is clearly me, if I follow through on that, doing something because I fear the repercussions of not doing it, not because God has called me to do this in this moment, if that makes sense. And we almost make it a virtue of, well, if something's going on in our workplace and I am the, the manager or I'm the director, or if something's happening in my church and I'm on vacation, then I need to come home and deal with that, right? But at that point, we're putting ourselves in the place of Savior. We're putting ourselves mm-hmm. in the hero role when that mm-hmm. was never meant for us. And I've seen people, man, I've seen people, they celebrate it. They're like, well, I haven't had a full vacation in 20 years because <laughs> I go. But I've also seen people my age whose parents were leaders or pastors who are looking at themselves and saying, where were my parents? Mm-hmm. They did a lot of good things for a lot of other people and mm-hmm. they, brought a, they brought money in and they cared for the family. But did they care for me in the ways that I really needed care? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a big part of this too is recognizing that you can only do that kind of codependent way of doing ministry for so long before you just burn out. And that's going to either end up in just pure mental and emotional breakdown. It ends in all kinds of moral failures. I think the thing about moral failures that we miss over and over again is they are rooted in an emotional bankruptcy, an unaddressed wound. Like it, it's, it's almost never, I had this opportunity to sin and I took it, right? It, it's so much more than that. And to your point, you know, I, during the pandemic, was meeting with a group of pastors and a pastor of a large church in our area had made the comment that, you know, I haven't had a sabbatical in 40 years. And mm-hmm. he was like, you know, if my board was kind of like, if you love what you do, you don't need a sabbatical, you know? And I'm like, mm-hmm. Wow. Like maybe, maybe, maybe I should love what I do a little bit more. Maybe I don't. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe the problem is me. Yeah. And lo and behold, within two years, he has a major moral failing and is out of the church and out of leadership. And I'm just over and over again, we can think, okay, I can run myself ragged for the approval of these people, or I can learn some boundaries and actually do ministry for the long haul. But I'm not sure that it's possible to do both. (laughs) And we also misinterpret scripture. We say, look at how these leaders in the early church sacrificed themselves. I mean, Mm -hmm. look at Paul's resume. He was shipwrecked twice. Like, have Mm -hmm. you been shipwrecked even once? (laughs) I know you went on that cruise at one time and it got a little windy. Not the same thing. (laughs) Right. I remember when I was in collegiate ministry, I needed a vacation Mm because I was burnt out. And Mm -hmm. at that point, I didn't have any idea of healthy rhythms of life. It was more like, I'm going to work until I'm exhausted, then I'm going to take a break. And I was wondering why that wasn't rejuvenating me. Because <laughs> my rhythms were off, man. They were terrible. But yeah. I re- I'll never forget this person looked at me and she said, well, Jesus never took a vacation. Well, one, they didn't have vacations in the ancient Near East. So you're mm-hmm. kind of right, but they had rhythms. They had rhythms mm-hmm. of rest. They had rhythms of relationship. They had rhythms of remembrance where they would remember they had these rhythms that would ultimately keep their lives in check. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, even when you think about something like Sabbath keeping and how that was such a 
like powerful part of the rhythm of their week. He may not have had vacations, but how many of us have 24 hours in a week where we set aside to experience the presence of God in a meaningful way, apart from our performance in ministry? That, that is a significant impact on our mental and emotional health, much less our spiritual health. It's taking that time to almost meditate on scripture, meditate on who God is for us to mm-hmm. rest in that. Because, you know, we get, we get stuck in the cycle of doing the things, right? Like I'm going to mm-hmm. go to church. I'm going to, I'm going to read the books. I'm going to make sure I don't do these things, but it's mm-hmm. all about doing, whether it's about what we don't do or what we do. But at the end of the day, we just get stuck in works. We're, we're on this performance treadmill, as Jerry Bridges used to say. <laughs> and what you're saying is in our work, whatever it is, whether it's ministry, whether your vocation is different, being able to realize that your identity doesn't come and your success is not ultimately grounded in what you do. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also, I think, recognizing that And this may seem simple, but it was a game changer for me, which is whenever I felt this pressure to be who someone else wanted me to be, meaning they've asked me to do something and I'm kind of, I feel like I should say, no, I don't want to do it, but I feel this pressure to do it. What I realized is every time I said yes to that pressure and gave into that, I was saying no to something else. Right. And we almost never are cognizant of what we're saying no to. We're just aware of the pressure we feel to say yes. And a huge thing for me was being able to begin quantifying, okay, if I say yes to this, what am I saying no to? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it was no to emotionally being present with my wife or emotionally being present with my kids. Um, Because I would say yes to this and then I would still be at home later with my kids because I I prioritize my time with them, but I haven't prioritized my emotional bandwidth as well. Um, And so that was huge for me is just whenever I felt that pressure to say yes to something, making that decision with a full awareness of what I'm also saying no to. Because we don't see that oftentimes. And we're living according to someone else's rule book in those moments. Like Mm -hmm. someone else is charting our course. They're saying, this is what you need to do rather than us taking the responsibility of saying, no, What's best for me as a pastor, but also what's best for me in this moment as a father, Mm -hmm. a husband, a Mm -hmm. son? How can I think through these levels of priority? And yeah, I think I I love how you talk about presence because I think that's part of it, right? Like as vulnerable people following a God who became vulnerable for us, sometimes in our vulnerability, we will put up walls or we'll distract ourselves because we have things on our mind Mm -hmm. and we're just kind of afraid to actually be present. But there's something beautiful in that. But sometimes the cares of life, the things that we're going through, we just get stuck worrying about those or doing those things. And we're not able to be with our family emotionally, like you Mm -hmm. said. I think that's, that's a brilliant thing to add because being present does matter. And to be present, we have to set boundaries. We have to say no. Yeah, you know, the ability to be present in the moment is one of the things that I think is not something we are taught to do. It's not something we know how to do very well. And as a result of that, we live in the anxiety of the future and the uncertainty of the future in a way that prevents us from being emotionally present currently. And I think as pastors in particular, 
when we are living in the anxiety of the future, it's difficult to be present with our parishioners in a way that they need us to be, to show up. I used to experience this intense social anxiety because whenever I went into a room as a pastor, my thought was, I've got to meet the expectations of everyone here. And as I was processing this with my therapist, her response to me one day is, she just stops me and says, Ike, you're just not that important. And I was like, that, that's humbling, but I, I will receive it. But her point was, she was like, when you walk into church on Sunday morning and you get a face from somebody that looks upset or disappointed, it doesn't necessarily mean they're disappointed in you. There's a hundred other things going on in their life that may be it, the cause of it. It might and have so, nothing to do with you. Absolutely. Yeah. And so for me to just simply show up and to be present to them and, and instead of how do I impress you, how do I be present to you? How do I make you feel heard? That was a game changer, both for me personally and my ability to avoid that social anxiety, but also to make people feel heard and seen in my context. Because you know when you're talking to someone, if they're really in that oh, yeah. moment. And there are people that I have gotten to know that honestly, they weren't that flashy. They weren't that fancy. They were just regular folks, but they would sit down with you and you would talk to them and they'd be like, okay, so you mentioned this. Tell me a little bit more. And all of a sudden I'm like, whoa. So he wasn't waiting for me to stop talking to talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. He's actually zeroing in. And I think as humans, we need that. And, And we talk about this idea of being present and and I love how you mention how the fear of the future and that anxiety can keep us from moving forward in that moment. It can keep us from looking in the eyes of the person we're talking to. We can be checking our stocks or seeing if someone has sent us a nasty email because they didn't like the sermon or <laughs> didn't right. like the podcast, you know? I <laughs> mean, right. Not that I've ever gotten any of them. I'm sure you have it. No. Never. But when you live there, you can't be here. Mm-hmm. But another thing that a lot of us do is we ruminate on the past. We just play it over and over of these times where maybe we failed, maybe we didn't, but whatever happened, we play over and over and we can't get out from under what happened years ago. And if we really look at life, you're not the same person you were yesterday because life is consistently chipping away. Like sanctification is at work, whether we see it happening or not. I mean, really, the only person that I have the responsibility to be is who I am now. And that's Mm -hmm. the only person I can be accountable for. Mm -hmm. I've made mistakes in the past. I'm sure I'll make mistakes in the future. But if I focus on who I am now, then I'm free to be present. How can we become more present in our day-to-days? You know, it's interesting the way that you put that, I think, clarifies something really important, which is it's difficult who God is calling me to be in this moment when I'm so preoccupied with Mm -hmm. the mistakes I've made in the past, ruminating on what's happened to me in the past. Not that those things aren't important. It's important for us to seek healing, to seek recovery, all of those things. But I don't see that as ruminating. I see that as doing in the present what is necessary to heal. But when we just ruminate on the past and can't move past that, it actually makes it more difficult for us to be who God wants us to be right now. And the same thing with the future, we can become so preoccupied with what's coming next and is it going to work out? Is this going to happen for me? 
that we also can't be who we need to be obediently in the present because we've always got to be angling for something to work out in the future. And both of those miss the point of, okay, who is the Holy Spirit asking me to be in this moment? And so if we genuinely want to be who God is inviting us to be in each moment, then being focused on where we are, the moment we're in, the context we're in, in the moment is going to be our most effective way to do that, I think. And if we focus on being present right here, right now, then do it tomorrow and then do it the next day, Mm -hmm. we're going to get to where we want to go. And I think, I loved how you mentioned we would be angling if we're worried about the future consistently and allowing that to shape our present behavior. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're we're going to always have an angle. The people that we talk to, we're going to rehearse what we say a hundred times to make sure that we get the desired result. And honestly, the whole time, we're probably blind to our control issues in that Mm -hmm. moment. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit throws all those things out the window in a sense. He's like, God's like, no, I'm in control here. You're free to just take a load off. Yeah. Take a breath and be. Not do, be. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. I realized one of the things that I, I think I can't remember if I wrote about this in the book or not, but I realized that this future fear, one of the things that it drove me to do was text sort of secretly in my off hours to stay on top of things because I wanted people to like be happy with me. I'd text somebody or write an email back to somebody around the corner from my family. So they didn't think I was working. But at the same time, I was trying to meet people's expectations of me. And instead of just being able to be present with my family and to right. be engaged with them, I was thinking, how can I get away for a couple of minutes to send this email real quick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I had a job where I felt like if I didn't answer emails immediately, mm-hmm. then I was going to be in trouble or that I was going to be seen as a bad boss. And mm-hmm. what happened was the people that I would spend time with felt robbed of that. And mm-hmm. they're like, why do you do this? Is this past trauma? Is this your own issues? <laughs> and and maybe it was. Maybe there was sure. this piece where I'm like, as long as I am perfect and I do all the things mm-hmm. expected of me, then I'll be loved. Mm-hmm. Then I'll be enough. Mm-hmm. And as we talk about this big grab bag that is our life, that our baggage, we've talked about codependency. But what's the good side of something like perfectionism that mm-hmm. often comes from mm-hmm. childhood trauma? You know, the way that I think about this, and and I I hope this is kind of what you're getting at, but growing up in a context that's dysfunctional, uh, a lot of those of us who end up having perfectionist tendencies as adults, a part of that was growing up in an environment where we felt the need to make everything okay, that, that we needed to make sure everybody was taken care of, that younger siblings were taken care of, that mom was comforted, that dad wasn't too angry, all of those kinds of things. And so it developed this intense sense of responsibility for everything and everyone around us. Yeah. And so as an adult, that now that actually is a means of gaining comfort for us, that, that yeah. if I feel like I'm in control of everything, then I can be comfortable. Or if Absolutely. I can do everything perfectly, then, then I'll be safe. Then everything will be okay. Yeah. And so perfectionism, more than a outcome of that is it's a side effect, I would say, 
of this response, this over responsibility that we feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a book called Adult Children of Alcoholics that listed 12 common characteristics of, of kids who grew up in that environment with an alcoholic parent. And I think it goes beyond that. I think many types of dysfunctional families have this. But one of the things that it said is that, that you either end up being super responsible or super irresponsible. Yeah. And I was like, how can it be such polar opposites? And as I was reading more about this, coming to understand that typically we respond to our dysfunctional childhoods in one of two ways, either by internalizing or externalizing. Internalizing meaning we assume that everything that's going on around us that's going wrong is a result of something wrong in me. And so if I can fix what's wrong with me, then I can fix everything around me. And so we feel this intense responsibility. For those who externalize, the assumption we come to is, well, everything's wrong because everybody around me is messing things up. And if everybody else would get their junk together, then my life would be okay. And so for those of us who end up being super responsible, it's because we internalized and we assumed if I can fix everything, then it'll be okay. And the super irresponsible said, it's everybody else. If everybody else would get their junk together, then I'll be okay. So they didn't take responsibility for anything. So I say all that to say that if we are finding ourselves with that perfectionist tendency, we may be taking responsibility for a lot of things that are not ours to take responsibility for. But the good in that, the good baggage that I encourage people to to see in it is that level of responsibility that we feel for others is actually a powerful way of loving others if we can pull it back from the level of perfectionism and anxiety that it can bring us. It can actually be a great gift of love for those around us when we take care of them. In your book, you write, I often wonder if I would be as motivated to pursue healthy relationships if I hadn't experienced the pain of unhealthy ones in my childhood. And so how do we get to this point? Because I love the quote. Mm -hmm. And you, you just mentioned this idea of good baggage, seeing the good in our baggage and seeing how Somehow in, in that pain, there's a gift. Mm-hmm. There's something that can be used to not only care for others, but care for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I was watching a reel because, you know, I'm, I'm an adult and I get sucked into them. <laughs> I just, I just wait for, I wait for the TikToks to get old and then I watch them like months later. But James Vanderbeek's on there, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, Oftentimes, the cure is in the disease. And I was like, well, well, that's fascinating. But like, who are you, Dawson, to tell me? Who are you to tell me that there is this cure in the disease? And he says, well, I'm trying to clean the front of my fireplace, which I don't connect with. That's not like relatable to me. I grew up in Florida. No fireplace here. <laughs> but he says, I've used everything to clean it. You know, everything. Nothing works. But he's like, I just figured out something. If you use ash and put it on a wet washcloth, it comes right off. And he says, so many times we're looking outside for the cure when the cure can be kind of packaged with the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps coming to mind as you're talking about this is there, there can be good in the bad that we've experienced. And when we're spending all of our time just trying to get rid of our baggage so we can be baggage free, like. All you have to do is be on a dating app for five minutes and you see someone and they'll be like, I don't want anyone with any baggage. They'll put that in their profile. <laughs> so I'm going to say no to that person, you know, be, not because I have baggage, but that mere statement. There's a lot of self-awareness that, there. <laughs> there's, you probably have some baggage, yeah. you know, you, but 
how do we get to a point where we can look for the good in yeah. the baggage? You know, I, the best way I know how to talk about that is to go back to the story you shared at the beginning about kind of picking up this book at a bookstore and, you know, then getting it as a breakup gift later, right? We joke about your reaction to that. Well, I'm just never going to go to bookstore with another girl again. Like that, that's off never. limits, you know? And I think that's how we respond to our, you know, maybe our parents' divorce is we're like, well, I'm just never going to get married. I'm just not going to even put myself in that situation again. Mm -hmm. And for some people that that is how they handle it. But in doing that, not everybody, but some of us, you kind of have to suppress this desire to have that relationship and to, to just, it's either... I can have that relationship and the pain that it gives me because that's how these things go, or I can just be alone. Those are my options. And my kind of assessment of my parents' marriage and the impact on me was, I can't deny that I want to be married, but at the same time, I don't want it to go like my parents' marriage. Right. And so letting that be the motivator to say, well, how do I do this differently? What do I need to do to do this differently? That is the good in there is it can drive us to do things that maybe our parents were willing to do for their relationship because they didn't know where it led. But having experienced it as a child, I'm like, I don't want my kids to go through that. What do I need to do to avoid that? That's one of the reasons that Sharon and I started seeing a counselor in our first year of marriage was because I didn't want to ever get to a place where we had to ask the question, should we go see a counselor at this point, right? I wanted it to be something that was already built into our lives that was already a part of what we were doing so that we never got to that point in our relationship. Yeah. And at that point, it becomes preemptive, right? You're doing it so that you don't have the problems or the blowups or just the implosions. Yeah. Yeah. And you're doing, I think there's a humility there too, because you are admitting to yourself that you don't have it together and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Rather than being that perfectionistic kid, Mm-hmm. You're now being an imperfectionist who's saying, yeah, I mean, there's good and bad here. Mm-hmm. But for me to navigate it, I need community. I need people. I need someone to walk alongside of me to help me maybe see things that I can't see. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. And so, and so in these last moments, what are a couple of ways that you would encourage our listeners as they're trying to find the good in their baggage? The big thing that I encourage people to come to terms with is the fact that our pain and the impact of our childhoods don't die just because we bury them. You don't ultimately have a choice as to whether your childhood will impact your relationships as an adult. They will impact them. The question is, will you engage with that and do the work to heal from it? Or are you going to let it erupt in your life in ways that you aren't ultimately able to control. One of the stories I think I share in the book is the story of me kind of having this pain in my tooth. And I go to the dentist and they're like, you should really get this checked out. And I'm like, you know, I'll deal with it when it starts to bother me, you know, right. if it starts to hurt. But they're on the x-ray and they're like, man, there's something going on there. And, and so a year passes, I go back, they're like, you know that thing on the x-ray? Did you ever get that checked out? And I'm like, no, it never really bothered me. So I didn't really do anything about it. And they were like, You really need to get that checked out because one Saturday morning, about 2 a.m., that thing is going to blow up on you and you're not going to be able to get help right away. And it's going to hurt so bad. And I was like, yeah, okay, it'll come on easily. It'll hurt a little bit and I'll get help. No joke. That Saturday morning at 2 a.m., that thing blew up and hurt so bad. 
so bad. And I go to the dentist the next week, you know, and I'm in so much pain. And they find out that that tooth has got an abscess in it. It's infected. They have to do a root canal, all of that. When I could have preemptively addressed this when the first signs of it showed up, right? Like when they saw it on the x-ray. And I'm concerned that for many of us, we just kind of say, well, I'll deal with it when it starts to bother me and it ends up being too late. And so I encourage people, if you know that your family had some dysfunction in it, you know that there were some dynamics that weren't healthy, do the work preemptively. Because worst case, you're only going to be healthier if you do it, right? Like, <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe you're mistaken. Maybe there wasn't any dysfunction. You're not going to get less healthy because you went to some therapy. That's right. It's not going to make things worse. It may feel like it in a moment because right. you're uncovering things. Yes. But yeah. But I promise you, it'll, it'll, yeah, mm-hmm. it's not going to make things worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking along those lines in the book, Boundaries with Townsend and Cloud, they talk about the difference between hurt and harm. And one of the things that they talk about there is if I go to the dentist, there's a lot about dentists say, I don't know. If I go to the dentist, and they have to do a root canal. That may hurt me in the short term, but it's going to help me in the long term, right? But harm is me choosing to eat candy every day, never brushing my teeth. And in the, in the short run, it doesn't really bother me. In the long run, it harms me. And so what I would encourage people to do is even if it's a little bit painful to, to kind of be humble and, and, and invite someone to speak into your life, the short-term pain of that, I believe, is worth the long-term gain. Absolutely. And go to the dentist for the love of all that is holy. <laughs> that's the takeaway here. That, that's the takeaway. Hey, Ike, thank you so much for joining me. Of course, Raleigh. Thanks so much for having me. If you are interested in more stories like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. Also, if you want bonus content, you can click on the link in the show notes to access our new and improved weekly bonus podcast, More Mercy, where I dive deeper into each episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. I want to hear from you. You can email me at info at mercycast.com. This podcast is brought to you by Let My People Go. To learn more about how you can love your most vulnerable neighbors through your own vulnerability, go to lmpg.org. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.